Thank you. Well, it is good to be back with you folks at Taylor's again. Uh, it, uh, last time I was here, Pastor Josh was just starting his uh, Bible study on Wednesday in Genesis. And uh, so he called me the other day. He said, I'm in Genesis 12. I said, well, if you want me to come next week, I'll finish Genesis for you. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, I think he was afraid I really meant that. And so he told me, he said, no, I don't want you to do Genesis. I'll do Genesis. I said, okay. <clears throat> so uh, I asked him, I said, well, what do you want me to do? He said, I just want you to do something completely different. And I said, okay, what do you want me to do? And he said, well, uh, why don't you help them understand the... Uh, discipline of systematic theology. Well, sadly enough, my PhD is in, his, in systematic theology, so maybe if that doesn't turn you on, we'll try to find out that you will. Well, l let me talk a minute first about biblical theology. You know, what, what is biblical theology? Well, in the most general term, I mean, everybody say, well, I want my theology to be biblical. I don't want it to be unbiblical, so biblical theology is theology you get out of the Bible. Well, that's true, uh, but that's not really what the technical meaning of biblical theology is. Okay, if somebody says, you know, the brother of Jesus is Satan, and when you die, if you are faithful, you're going to get a planet all of your own, you're going to say, that is not biblical theology. And you're right, that's Mormon theology there, whether you know it or not. Yeah. <clears throat> so you would say biblical theology is theology you get out of the Bible. Well, in the most general sense, that's true. But, but biblical theology also has a more technical meaning, a more technical definition. Okay? And uh, it, it, it basically means a, a theology that you, that you get by focusing on God's revelation as it appears in the Scripture. You study Genesis first, and what did God reveal in Genesis? You develop a theology, and you develop it all the way uh, on through. And, that's, and by the way, that's pretty much what Pastor Josh is doing. Okay, he, he's starting in Genesis, and then in 2023 he'll be in Exodus, <laughs> and then whatever else. But what he's doing is along the way he is developing biblical theology. And so biblical theology is it studies the revelation that God gives to us in any given period. For instance, you, you could have a biblical theology if, if you say, I'm going to preach tonight or teach in the next few weeks on the uh, the teachings of Jesus. Okay, that's biblical theology. I'm just going to teach you about what Jesus actually said. Or uh, uh, what God taught us through Moses, you know, the Pentateuch, th those kinds of things. Uh, and so uh, biblical theology is going to ask a question like, for instance, um, what, what, does, what do the Psalms teach us about prayer? Okay, it's just going straight to the Bible, getting it right out of it. What does uh, Paul teach us about salvation? All those would be, would be biblical theology. You say, well, what kind of other theology is there? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. But a comprehensive biblical theology, believe it or not, that's what Pastor, Paul, uh, uh, Pastor Josh is doing. Okay? It, it is going to look at the whole Bible, and that would be a comprehensive biblical theology as he's going through stage by stage. Okay? <clears throat> now, systematic theology is different. And what I did is put three definitions up there, and I hope, uh, hope you all can see those. Uh, these are actually three definitions from three different Southern Baptists who have written systematic theology books. 
Okay? Uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem says this is systematic theology. Notice that this is different than what I described to you a moment ago. He said it's any study that answers this question. What does the Bible teach today? Note the difference. Not just what. What does it teach us today on any given topic? Now, Morris Ashcraft said it this way. Systematic theology seeks to study, understand, and make a coherent statement of the doctrines of the Christian faith, both in their individual meanings and their relations to one another and the whole. Now, if that looks a odd, I'm going to come back and explain that just a little bit. Uh, John Hammett, dear friend of mine at Southeastern Seminary, says it this way. Systematic theology is that discipline that seeks to give a systematic coherent account of the ex exposition of the Christian faith based principally on Scripture. That's doing something else. It's addressing the concerns and questions of contemporary culture. Biblical theology is not doing that. It's just saying, let's see what he revealed to us at this time. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> leading also to personal application in Christian life and ministry. So notice, I think our next thing, no, it doesn't have this, I'm sorry. Notice those definitions talk about the whole Bible. If you're going to do systematic theology, it's not let me see what the Old Testament says, let me see what Jesus said. It says we're going to look at the whole Bible, and we're going to see what it says topic by topic. You understand, Pastor Josh is not going topic by topic. He's going book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. He's not doing topic by topic. Now, if you will look at your doctrinal statement for your church, and I think it's the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message, okay, this states your doctrinal. When you open it up, it doesn't say first Genesis, then Acts. You know what it says? It says like the Scriptures, and then God, and then Jesus, then salvation. You know what? That, that's topic by topic. It's more systematic theology than biblical theology, okay? Uh, and it seeks to make coherent statements about the doctrine. Let's say you're taking uh, uh, the doctrine of prayer. Okay? What did Isaiah say about it? And what did Jesus say about it? And what did Paul say about it? And how can we bring all of those together into a coherent doctrine about prayer? For instance, if you take a passage in prayer by, and it's isolation, you may get in trouble here without you know, looking at, wait a minute. We gotta, uh, for instance... Um, Jesus said, I love to start that way, Jesus said. That means there's not any question here. Okay? The committee has met. Okay? All right. Jesus said, ask and you shall receive. Y'all like that? I got a question for you. How many of you here have asked for something you did not receive? I would like to see the hands. Because if anybody's hand is not raised... I want to talk to you after the service because I need you to ask for some things for me. Okay? What, what systematic theology does is takes the uh, as prayer and looks at the whole context biblically, not just one passage, to make a coherent statement about it. There's many other passages we could look at as well. And then the, the one where it spoke of, you got these individual doctrines that you want to understand, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the church, all the you want to understand those individually, but systematic theology says, hey, those doctrines also relate to each other. You know, the doctrine of God is not completely separate from the doctrine of salvation. 
You understand that, but since God is the one who saves, you know, you really can't separate those two. Okay? And so systematic theology is saying we're trying to bring these together into a consistent, uh, coherent understanding. Now, what I have done is chosen one doctrine that we will look at today, and we will see systematic theology put into practice. Okay? And it is the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity. Okay? Now, there's a definition of the doctrine of the Trinity. Do we have that one? I, I, bless your heart, I gave you these, and then somehow they came out of order. It's like, okay, we got to pick through these. There's the Trinity. Here's, here's what that doctrine says. There's one, the, the one true God eternally exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each of them is fully God. Now, i got a question for you. Tell me where that is in the Bible. It's not in there. In those words. Okay? It's not in there. So is the Bible, is the Bible, are, are we wrong? Are we not doing real biblical theology when we talk about the Trinity then? It, it's not in there. You know? There's one God, three persons. Now let me say something about that doctrine here. I, I, I'll, a lot of times I'll mention to my students, I'll say... Folks, uh, contradictions cannot be true. Folks, if you are in the presence of a contradiction, you are in the presence of untruth. And invariably, at least one student will raise his or her hand. And I have done this for so long, I will say to them, I will call on you, and I will ask the question that you're wanting to ask, and I'll answer that for you. And they'll say, well, how do you know what we're asking? I said, because I taught this before. Okay? And what you're going to point out is, what about the Trinity? Is God three or is he one? And they say, that's exactly what I was going to ask. That's what I thought. So I've asked it for you, and I'll seek to respond to it. Uh, there is not a contradiction in the doctrine of the Trinity. If there was, it could not be true because contradictions cannot both be true. Okay, now, how do we understand that? Okay. How, what, how are we supposed to look at, at this? Let's, I want you to listen to these two sentences and see if you think they're contradictory. I'm going to read you two of them. You tell me. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are three things. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are one thing. Is that contradictory? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. You want to take a vote? Okay. Uh, it, it looks like on the surface it's a contradiction. You just said they're one and you just said they were three. But wait a minute. When I said they were one, it means they are one family. When I said they are three, it means they're three distinct persons. So it's not contradictory. The, 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 the theological formula for the doctrine of the Trinity is not God is one God and God is three gods. That's contradictory. It could not be true. It is there is one God in three persons. That's not a contradiction. It may be difficult for us to get our heads around, but it's not a contradiction. If it was a contradiction, it could not be true. Okay? So that's what the doctrine of the Trinity is. Now, it gets more interesting here. When we really stop to think that um, the word Trinity is not even in the Bible. 
Folks, that really, that really messes up a lot of Christians because here's what happens. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses come and knock on the door. And they begin to spill out their theology and you say, no, that's not biblical. And they say, really? You say, yeah, because you don't believe in the Trinity. And they say it's not in the Bible. And you know what a lot of Christians say? It is, and I'll prove it, because I've got a comprehensive concordance that's got every word that's in the Bible. And I'll go get it and show it to you. And they look it up, and it's not there. And the next week, they're not at the church. They're at the watchtower <laughs> worshiping with the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, because they didn't actually understand the biblical position here. <clears throat> so... The task of systematic theology goes to work here. And it says, let's take every passage in the entire Bible that has anything to do with God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, let's get them and put them together and try to make a, you saw the word, a coherent doctrine out of these. And, and that's what it does. It tries to make a consistent, coherent statement about it. And that's what the doctrine of the Trinity does. Okay, And so... You really, the reason I chose the doctrine of the Trinity was a couple of reasons. One, it, it is fascinating, but I think it's probably the place where systematic theology is on display more than any other place. Because I said, you read that statement of the Trinity and you say, where in the Bible is that? It is not there. Does that mean that the, the, the Trinity is not biblical? No. <laughs> You wouldn't get this if you were just doing biblical theology because you'd just go from here to here to here to here, and there's no place the Bible talks about the Trinity. Now, what does it talk about? Folks, there are four strands of biblical evidence that when you put them together and bring a coherent statement about them, it's going to be something very similar to the doctrine of the Trinity. It's going to have to, and they're listed for you there. Folks, the, and we're going to look at these, you know, when you, when you take all these together, just on the surface, it looks like, oops, we're in trouble here, <laughs> until systematic theology comes along and helps us out. Okay, first of all, we're going to see there is this strand of evidence that the Bible tells us there's only one God. Y'all with me? And nobody here has a problem with that. There's one God. But folks, the Bible also teaches that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all three God. Well, if the Father and the, the Son and the Holy Spirit are all three God, then how is there just one God? Okay? So it seems like we got a problem here. Okay? Uh, well, but you could solve that problem this way. If the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit was really all the same person, you know, you wouldn't have a problem. I could say to you here, my brother's brother is standing here before you. My mother's son is standing here before you. My wife's husband is standing. You say, well, that's not a problem. That's all the same person. Well, that, that's true. Well, you wouldn't have a problem if we said the Father is the same thing as the Son, and the Son's the same thing as the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's the same thing as the Father. Of course, there's just one God. They're all just the same thing. The problem is the biblical evidence shows that they are three different entities. And we're going to look and see what the Scripture says about those. And then the, there is lines of evidence in the Scripture that we will look at that these three are somehow united in a tri-unity. That's Trinity. Okay? So the systematic theologian looks at all these passages and says, how in the world are we to make sense out of these? 
Okay. How do we to make a consistent, coherent statement out of all of these verses? Okay, so I'm going to take the first one of these, and we're not going to spend much time on it because I don't think anybody really questions this or that the Bible teaches this, and that is there's only one God. <laughs> Folks, the doctrine of the Trinity has as part of its statement there is one God. Okay? Now, uh, it, that's clear in the Scriptures. In fact, so clear when, when James in chapter 2 of his book, when James wanted to make the point of some clear doctrine that nobody would have even disagreed with, he talked about there's only one God. In James 2.19, I think we've got that. He says, you believe there's only one God? Well, good, even the demons believe that. So there's not much question about there's only one God. Okay, that's pretty clear. Paul actually appealed to the fact that there's only one God in the Corinthian passage there. You remember they were, they were asking whether or not it was right to eat meat once it had been sacrificed to idols because you could buy it cheaper. These pagans would, would, would uh, sacrifice these animals and then with the leftover they'd say, well, let's just take it down here to the butcher and sell it. And he would, and the, and the butcher would sell it cheaper, and Christians would say, but we don't know if we ought to eat that because it was sacrificed to idols. Paul said, eat it. It's not a problem. He said, well, why is it not a problem? Well, the verse there says why. Here's how he reasoned. So about eating food sacrificed to idols, he says, an idol is nothing. The idol that it's being sacrificed to doesn't even exist. Why? There is no God except one. There is only one God. These things are not being sacrificed to true gods. There's only one God. And then he goes on in verse 6, there is but one God, and that's the Father from whom all things come. On the... Okay, so it's clear in the Scriptures there is this line of evidence that we have one God. Now that's not a problem until we get to that second line of evidence that's there. And that is that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinct individuals. They're not all the same person. Like I said, my mother's son, uh, my children's father, my wife's husband, they're all the same person. That's all me. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are not all the same. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not the Father. These are Well, now if that happens, that's what we seem to have a problem because you've got one God, now it seems we have three. Well, the Scripture is very clear that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are three different entities, three different persons. Notice Isaiah uh, 61.1. Notice what's present in this verse. The Spirit, by the way, that's the Holy Spirit that he's talking about, of the Sovereign Lord, that's the Father, is on me. That can't be all the same person. Okay. Those are three distinct beings. And he goes on to say, the Lord, that's the Father, has anointed me, that's the Son, to preach the gospel. Because you can't make any of that, that many sense out of that verse if the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are the same thing. The Son is actually doing the talking and saying that the Spirit of the Lord is on me. So three, you got the same thing in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 26. A clear distinction is made between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are not the same persons. John, 20, uh, John 15, 26. When the Counselor, that's the Holy Spirit, comes, I, that's Jesus, the Son, He's the one speaking, I will send Him to you from the Father. Because you can't make any sense of that passage 
if the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are the same person, okay? They're clearly presented in the Bible as three. Now, the last statement on it is Jesus' statement. You remember when Jesus was baptized? You've got the Son there. He's being baptized. And the Bible says the Spirit came upon him. Well, there's two, okay? Jesus didn't come upon himself, okay? The Spirit came upon him. And when the Spirit came upon him, the Father spoke. And he said, this is my Son. The three individuals, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are indeed three different entities. But there's only one God. Yeah, there's one God. The scripture's clear on that. But it's also clear that the Father's not the Son. The Son they're different entities. Now, there's that third line of evidence in the Bible that we want to look at. And that is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all God. Well, how can they all be God if there's only one God and they are three distinct beings and you've got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Well, what you have to do is let's say, how are we going to justify from the Scripture that they are all God? Uh, the Bible's clear on the fact that God the Father is God and that the Son is God and that the Holy Spirit's God. Well, we could look at some passages on that. I won't take any time to talk about the Father being God. There's no, no question about that, okay? But what about the Son? Is He really God? Well, that's where your Jehovah's Witnesses will say, no. They have an Aryan Christology. They would say, no, it's, it's, it, he, He's not, okay? The question is, what does the Bible say? Now, <clears throat> systematic theology says, okay, what we're going to do to try to see what the Bible says about Jesus, is He really divine? Yeah. Is he really God? Is we're going to have to take all the passages that actually talk about this and we're going to try to put those uh, together. Now, folks, there's a two or three ways you can do this. Uh, if you think y'all got it bad, I do this over a period of about two hours in my systematic theology class. So we're not going to go there. We could do this. I'll just talk. To, you can just look at some passages. And, and I'll do that. You've you got the passage in uh, Philippians chapter 2. Folks, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, when it is understood properly, that is the strongest Christological passage in the Bible. I mean by that, it is the clearest expression in the Scriptures of who Jesus is. That, that He is God, that He is man, and that He is joined together in union in the person of Jesus Christ. I don't have time. Now, if Pastor Josh will bring me back around Christmas... I'll preach this passage to you, and I'll show you there is no way to say in the Greek language any more clearly that Jesus was fully God and fully man in one person. Okay? It's there. Have this mind, he says, among you, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, the morphe of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being in the likeness of men, he was a really human being, okay? Uh, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, the death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, given him a name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow uh, in heaven, on earth, and uh, uh, under the earth. Every tongue is going to confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When a person understands those, some of those specific Greek words that are in there, folks, that is a strong statement that Jesus is God and that Jesus is man. That's the strongest, clearest Christological passage. Now, the prologue 
of John's gospel does the same thing in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Sounds a little bit odd to us. In the beginning was the Word. When? All the way back to the very beginning. You say Genesis? No, no, the beginning. <laughs> Even before that. Okay. The Word was with God and the Word was God. So whoever this being is, he's clearly stating he was God. Okay. Without, uh, he was with God at the beginning. Through him all things were made. Folks, who made the world? God. And it just says, this being made the world. That's interesting. <laughs> Without him nothing was made. Actually, when you go on to about verse, thir verse 13, it says that word became flesh and dwelt among us. Folks, that's the incarnation of Jesus. He was, the he, was, he was God, still is God. He takes on human flesh and actually walked among us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay. The Bible clearly teaches in these verses that Jesus was God. But I don't spend that time on that day. I actually want to show you how systematic theology would say there's other ways to prove from the Bible that he's God. You bring all of these things into consideration. And so what I actually want to do is appeal to Jesus' own self-consciousness. What did he believe about himself? Did he believe he was God? Folks, there's never a place in the Bible where Jesus said, I'm God. It's never in there. Uh, did he claim to be God? Yes. Folks, there are ways to claim to be God without saying, I am God. And I'm going to show you. This is what systematic theology does. It says, let's bring these other things in all together. So how in the world do we know that Jesus thought he was God if he never just said that? Well, here's how. Uh, there's uh, more threads of evidence here. Yeah. What, what does he think about himself? Uh, we have uh, Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 12. Folks, notice what Jesus did on several occasions. He claimed to possess things that only belong to God. Folks, if you possess things that only belong to God, what is that saying? That you're God. For instance, the, the example I gave there was about his angels. Because if you look in Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 9, it says these are God's angels. I tell you the truth, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge him before the angels of God. Who do the angels belong to? They belong to God. And yet, in Matthew 13, now notice again, we're going to all kinds of passages. You don't do that in biblical theology. You just go straight through it. Okay. Matthew 13, 41, this is Jesus. The Son of Man will send his angels. Whose angels are they? They're God's. Whose angels are they? They are Jesus's. That's what he just said in Matthew 13, 41. I'm going to, the Son of Man is going, he didn't say the Son of Man's going to send God's angels. He said the Son of Man's going to send his angels. Whose angels did Jesus say they were? They were his. <laughs> well, folks, what if I were to come in here to you folks today and say, look, I'm going to make sure all of you are safe going home because I've had a conference with my angels and they're going to protect you. You'd say, that guy's lost his mind. He thinks he's got angels. Folks, Jesus thought he had angels. And you know what? He did. 
they were his. <laughs> you know, if you, if you possess what only God possesses, then you are making a claim to deity. Well, but by the same way, you could, I could also use this where Jesus refers to God's kingdom. But then he also retur- refers to my kingdom. Folks, if that's the case, he has to be claiming that he's God. The same thing, God's elect, he talks about my elect. So he, he claims, as we've seen, to have possessions that only belong to God. Folks, if that's the case, that is a claim to deity in the Scriptures. The Scriptures, that part of the Trinity is true. Jesus really is God. Now, he also did something else that only God can do. And that is, he forgave sins. Folks, I can't forgive you of your sins. If you wrong me and you ask yourself, I can say, hey, I'll forget it. I can't forgive you of your sins. And here's why. We have to sort of watch how we use language. Folks, we don't sin against other people. We always sin against God. Whatever I do to you or you do to me, I've broken God's law, not yours. (laughs) Okay? That's That's why David, even after sinning with Bathsheba, and, and a, after uh, having her husband killed, he turns around and has the audacity to write in Psalm 51, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. And you know what? He was exactly right. Uh, parable of the prodigal son. It says, I have sinned. This is very interesting. He said, I have sinned uh, before you, you've seen it, but against God. Folks, you can die with everybody having forgiven you for what you did to them and that doesn't mean you're right with God because sin is against God. Only God can forgive sin. The Jews knew it. So, you remember the story you've heard from when you was a child? You know, when they had to bring the paralytic down through the roof for Jesus to heal him because they couldn't get there because of the crowd? Yeah, remember that? This is, what, this, is, this is what Jesus said in Mark. This is Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Wouldn't you have liked to hear Jesus say that to you? Yours, but friends, he's the only one that can forgive you. But notice this. These, these Jews were right at this point. There were some teachers of the law sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Why, who can forgive sins but God? If he says he's forgiving sin, he's claiming to be God. And Jesus is saying, "Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm. Looks, there's an explicit claim to deity here on the part of Jesus. Not just verses that say he was. There's plenty of those. We could have looked at them. But Jesus does only what the Father can do, and that's forgive sin. When he claimed to do that, it was a claim to be God. And then, Jesus is going to do a third thing. He hadn't done this one yet, but he's going to. He's going to judge the world. Folks, who's going to judge the world? God. He's the only judge of the world. And yet, in Matthew 25, 31 and 32, he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory... 
again, all the angels with him. He will sit on the throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. He's going to separate them one from another as a, sheep, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. Friend, there's only one person that's going to judge this world, and that is God. And Jesus said that he's going to do it. Okay? So what we've done there is used systematic theology to look a lot of different passages together and look at Jesus' claims and to bring a statement very clearly that the Scripture is very clear that it teaches that Jesus is God. Not only is God the Father God, the, the Son is God. Well, the Holy Spirit is as well. There are some denominations that deny that, that the Holy Spirit's not really a separate entity here. Well, think about the baptismal formula. I'm going to use that in a couple of different ways here in, in a few moments. You know, Y'all certainly know that. Okay? And Jesus came to them and said, All authority is given to me on heaven and earth. Now, folks, I could have stopped right there. Who has all authority on heaven and earth? God. And what did Jesus just say he had? All authority on heaven and earth? Folks, if that's not a claim to deity, I don't know what would be. Certainly it is. But then here's what it says. I want you to see this about the, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Folks, notice the Holy Spirit is put in the same, on the same level with the Father and the Son. If He wasn't God too, putting the Holy Spirit in there would be completely out of, out of place. What if He had said, this, uh, Be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and Moses. So wait a minute, that's out of place, <laughs> you know. Uh, the Father, the Son, and John the Baptist. So wait a minute here. No, no, he, he's, he's saying to be baptized in the name of three equal beings here. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as well. Okay. So the Holy Spirit is included in there as being God. Interesting passage again. Again, notice we're not doing biblical theology here. Now the theology is based on the Bible, as I said, but it's not... The biblical theology where you just take one passage and stay with it and you go to here, then you go. This is grabbing from a lot of different places and bringing them together to make a coherent statement. Okay? Is the Holy Spirit God? In Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. This is the Ananias and Sapphira uh, catastrophe there. And Jesus said to them, uh, and, and Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart that you lied to who? The Holy Spirit, he says. You lied to the Holy Spirit. But he goes on. Didn't, didn't it, the land belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of such a thing? You have lied not to men, but to whom? But to God. You said just a moment ago he had lied to the Holy Spirit. Did he lie to the Holy Spirit or did he lie to God? The Holy Spirit is God. <laughs> when you lied to the Holy Spirit, you were lying to God because the Holy Spirit is understood to be God. Now, what have we shown? There's only one God. The Scripture's very clear on that. Okay? There's only one God. We also showed that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are three distinct entities. They're not all one person. Okay? So you got a one somehow and a three somehow. Okay? And all three of them are God. So I'll show that in the Scriptures, various ways. Now, the Scripture also indicates that these three are presented as being unified in some way. Okay. Where are we going to find that in the Bible? In different places. 
you know, we won't be saying, let's just see what Moses says about that. We're looking at the entire Bible. We go anywhere in the Bible we have to go to make, to make the point. Now, as I said earlier, the doctrine of the Trinity does not appear, the, the, the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. The building blocks for building a doctrine of the Trinity are all found in the Bible. We go through and pick them out and bring them together. Now, folks, actually, and this is another thing that, that um, confuses a lot of Christians and gets them off on the wrong path, and that is the Chalcedonian formula in, in which the one God in three persons actually came, actually came at the Council of, Chal of Chalcedon. Folks, it was in 451, A.D. 451. Jesus had been in heaven a long time before the church actually came up with this statement, there's one God in three persons. And that's another thing that these holding aberrant theologies will say, the church just invented the doctrine of the Trinity. You didn't even have it until 451. Well, that's part true and mainly false. Okay? It is false that all of the teachings and components that make up the doctrine of the Trinity that we looked at, those four of them, the church did not come up with those folks. Those are in the Bible. The, the church may have stated it in this form in, in, in 451, but it didn't believe that God, God wasn't but one God and that God, the Holy Spirit, they were all God, and that they were, they believed that all along. They just didn't have the Trinitarian formula. Okay? That's actually what came, what came later. Now, folks, people want to ask, why is that? I'll explain to you. There are many reasons why it was that late. Part of the reason is this. Up until just about that time, folks, the church was suffering heavy persecution. And they were trying to evangelize the world. Folks, when you're doing that, you don't have a lot of time left over for theological reflection. You, you understand? You're just trying to live from one day to the next and bring as many people to Jesus as you possibly can in the process. As soon as, that's in 325, as soon as Christianity was made a legal religion, Christians started thinking about these and started thinking about these councils. So if you don't know why it is, that's one of the main reasons. They didn't have the time to figure this out. Now, they still believed all the time there's only one God. And they believed that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all were God and that they weren't the same one and that they were unified somehow. They just didn't have a formal statement as we do that he's one God in three persons. Now, <clears throat> there are passages that indicate this. I want to call your attention back to Matthew 28, 19, that baptismal formula there because I want you to, I want you to see something very significant here. Jesus says, go baptize them, okay? And, and notice, he says, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How many is that? That's three. Look at the word name. Is it name or names? Ooh. Ooh. One name, and then how many people did he give us? You know why? Because they're all one. They're three different things. They're Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the other proof of that, and this shows up much more in, in the Greek, the, the article is before, he didn't just say Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Folks, that's three. And he calls it one name. You know what that is? That's three in one. 
that he's one in some way. Now, again, the church did not work that out in a clear formula of a statement until 451. But Jesus didn't say this in 451. He said it during his lifetime. Uh, there is a unity of these here. Uh, Equally, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Other passages place them together in a type of unity. Second Corinthians passage. May the grace, notice, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. Folks, that's three different things. They're forming one ministry here. Okay. Uh, strongly states unity in diversity. First Peter 1, 2. Speaking of the church, who has been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit unto obedience to Jesus Christ. Folks, that's three again brought together in one unified ministry. That's one God in three persons. You say, does it say that? No. But systematic theology brings these things together and says when you put them all together, you can say that. And you can say it truthfully and you can say it biblically. And so, even though the doctrine of the Trinity is not directly asserted in the Scriptures, don't go look for it that way, the Bible contains many teachings that there's only one God and that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all God and that the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is not the Father and they are all united in one. You say, where does the Bible say that? Biblical theology would say, well, we don't really deal with that. We just go in this passage to this passage to this passage. Systematic theology says, I'll tell you where it is. It's in a bunch of places. And we have to bring these together into a systematic unity, and that's what it's doing. That is systematic theology at work, probably, and again, I would think probably at its best. Okay? That's a different, what's biblical theology going to do? It's just going to start in Genesis, which is, is great. That's not, you've got to actually have that before you can do the systematic theology. You know, that's foundational. Biblical theology just says, what did Moses say about this? What did Joshua teach about this? What did the prophets teach about this? What does the psalmist teach about this? Systematic theology says we're going to seek to bring it together into some unified whole to make a coherent statement about it drawing from different places. Now, I hope that's understandable to you. I hope it wasn't too but that's what systematic theology is doing, and the church is in great need of systematic theology. So uh, I hope that's helpful. Uh, it ought to help us to more fully appreciate that God didn't reveal everything at one time in one place. He gave us minds to where we can be led by the Spirit to look and bring these passages together and make consistent, coherent statements about them like the doctrine of the Trinity. The word Trinity does not appear in the Bible, but I will assure you on biblical grounds, God is a triune God. And the church did not overstep any rational or biblical boundaries when they said God is one God in three persons. That's what we believe, and we believe it because the Bible says that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it really is a light unto our feet, a lamp to our path. Lord, do help us hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Lord, thank you for the revelation that you've given to us. Lord, forbid that we would ever think that we could fully grasp everything you've told us. 
Uh, Lord, we, we can't even live up to what we do understand. And we ask your grace to help us do that. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you are the God that you are. Lord, that you didn't ask us our opinions about who you ought to be. Uh, Lord, that you tell us who you are. And you are indeed the all-glorious, all-powerful, all-knowing one. And Lord, it is our delight and it is our privilege to be your servants. We count it all joy. Lord, I ask your blessings upon this church, this body of believers. Lord, we thank you for the great report uh, that we heard at the beginning of our service here. Lord, we are grateful to you for that. We ask that that might continue. May you continue to add to your church daily as you did in those New Testament days. Lord, only you can truly add to the church. We're dependent upon you. But Lord, we're going to do all that we can for you to use our services to fulfill that purpose. So I thank you for this church. Thank you for Pastor Josh, the other staff leaders, and Lord, every one of these precious members that makes up the body of Christ in this local church of Taylor's First Baptist. Lord, I thank you for them. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. Okay.